Time travel has always been debatable. That's for sure. There are the select stereotypes some that claim that it is real, and can cite their sources from either Battlestar Galactica or Star Trek. But most people believe it is an illusion like any hopeful trick we are made to believe when we were children. We even had evidence from a small watch found in the tomb of an ancient Chinese emperor to a man warning us of our imminent danger, ultimately going to an insane asylum. But there hasn't been any real proof, any substance that has made the world exclaim, hey, time travel is real. From science to science fiction, the idea of time travel has either been highly resolved or mocked for its juvenile concept. Consider the grandfather paradox, created by René Bargevel. This French science fiction writer presented a scenario that a man traveled back in time and shot his grandfather before he even met his grandmother. Since they never met, one of the man's parents was never born, thus making the man never been born. Since the man was never born, he was never back in time to kill his grandfather, thus making the idea of backwards time travel null and void. But then, why would you want to kill your grandfather? From faster than light time travel to time dilation, scientists proposed numerous theories on the answer on how to go back. Einstein, or E equals MC squared, presented the most common idea of the wormhole. The wormhole, or shortcut, becomes a connection between two different areas of space. This creates an easier shortcut way of getting from one side to the other. The way this is connected with time travel is that two areas of space have different levels or speeds of time, so that one can leave their house today, go through the wormhole, and enter their home yesterday. The major problem with that theory is that if you created a machine to go through the wormhole, then you can only be able to go back when the machine was made. With the wormhole theory, technology could not move backwards since it was not created during that time. So you couldn't bring your cell phone, iPod, and camera into 1912 to go shoot grandpa. This theory also linked to Stephen Hawking's theory that the reason that there is no time travelers from the future is that the machines have not been invented yet, so they couldn't go back in time to visit us. I never really understood that logic though, I never took physics. However, let me present an idea. Let's just say, wormholes do exist. They exist all around us, not solely in the space outside our reaches, but in the space that hugs our daily routines and surroundings. These wormholes, like a clock store, work in different times of speed in a randomized fashion across the universe. These wormholes open and close, bringing all living things from one place to the next. We never see them, similar to how we do not see certain kinds of light, and we cannot fathom its magnitude. Like the forming of Earth, it had a major part of our existence, which we have not cultivated from it. And let's just say that we haven't taken life seriously. Like we've seen the world in a metaphorical sense, ultimately choosing what we want to see literally. When travelers come to us and declare their marvelous miracles, we scoff and we turn our heads. For us, the insane homeless man can only be one thing, nothing else. Because in truth, seeing is better than believing. 
And so if we push the idea or possibility aside, we ignore the realities around us. And let's just say that your relative that ran away from home, never to be seen from again, actually found a shortcut to a bygone era. Let's just say maybe the logical answer is the more magical one. And the magical one is the real logic. Let's just say that they are lost in a world that is not their own, striving to tell the truth, ultimately being scoffed away. Maybe the insane is the sane, and the sane is the insane, and we can't tell the difference. Someone once told me that when Columbus sailed to America, none of the Native Americans could see the ships. Despite the impending doom on the horizon, for the people, it simply wasn't there. Since there was no way of understanding what was right in front of them, there was no need to believe in its existence. Despite our adamant confidence in our differences, our mind frames are still the same. But hey, that's just an idea. Welcome to Tales of Two Cities. Hello? Welcome. This is Flames of the Two Cities. Oh, I'm so excited. Hi, and welcome back to Tales of Two Cities podcast. I'm Nikki, and this episode is about personal accounts of time travel. Victor Goddard was born February 6th, 1897, to Dr. Charles Goddard. He followed in his father's footsteps, becoming a distinguished man. He attended the Royal Naval Colleges at Osborne and Dartmouth before serving as a midshipman in the First World War. He joined the Royal Naval Air Service in 1915. After his service, he went on to study engineering at Jesus College in Cambridge before moving to the Imperial College London, though he returned to Cambridge in 1925, now as an instructor to the Air Squadron. He graduated from the Royal Naval Staff College in 1929, became a chief instructor in 1931, and was appointed the Deputy Director of Intelligence at the Air Ministry in 1935. When World War II erupted, Goddard became the senior air staff officer and played a major role in preserving British assets in the face of German attacks. In his career, he modernized air support and began regular air broadcasts on BBC. It was his work on the Battle of Guadalcanal and the Solomon Island Campaign that won him the American Navy Distinguished Service Medal. But these accomplishments are not what Goddard is known for. No. He's known for a clairvoyant episode, a moment in 1935 in Scotland when, at an airfield that was abandoned at the time in 1935, he saw it as it would be in 1939. Skeptics call it clairvoyance. Believers may say he traveled through time. He was flying from Edinburgh to Andover, England. Remember, he was a well-decorated, educated, and practiced pilot. As he passed over a dilapidated airfield in Drem, Scotland, he noticed that the foliage had taken over the area. Cattle had moved in. It looked like it had been forgotten. Perhaps it was a farm, but a poor, unmaintained one at that. He noticed it, but he didn't do much else. He kept flying and reached his destination of Edinburgh. A few days later, he began his trip back to Andover. He took the same route, flying again over Drem. 
But before he got to Drem, he hit a strange storm. Strange because it wasn't just high winds or torrential rain, but it was yellow clouds. Goddard became disoriented and soon lost control of the plane. As he tried to climb above the yellow clouds to regain control, he felt they didn't end, and soon the plane was falling. Then, suddenly, and just in time, the clouds broke. He saw the ground again. But something looked different. That airfield at Drem, the one that had been just plants and cows, was no longer abandoned. Instead, it looked populated. He saw mechanics, four planes, and a runway. He noticed details, strange details, bits that stood out because they were unlike what he expected. Three of the planes were yellow, which was a color that the Royal Air Force did not use on their planes. He noticed that one of the planes looked like nothing he'd ever seen before, a monoplane, which was nothing that the Royal Air Force had in 1935. The mechanics had on blue overalls, another strange detail, as all Royal Air Force mechanics wore brown overalls. He didn't overthink it. He was flying quickly, and soon that storm returned. The sunshine became yellow clouds, hard rain, and wind yet again. He fought the storm and managed to fly safely back to his home base. When he landed, he had quite the story to tell. He mentioned the strange storm, then the peculiar details, the blue overalls, the monoplane, the yellow paint. But his friends, of course, believed he was lying, maybe just pulling their leg. Others called him crazy. Soon it all made sense. The strange bits, the yellow paint, monoplane, blue overalls, were not the norm in 1935. They weren't invented in 1935. But that's just it. It wasn't 1935. What he saw was 1939. Victor Goddard saw Drem as it was in 1939. Training planes were painted yellow, the monoplane, the Magister, joined their collection, and at the end of 1939, all mechanics' overalls had been switched to blue instead of brown. Some believe this was a clairvoyant experience. He was involved in others. In January of 1964, in Shanghai, China, Goddard was at a party. He was scheduled to fly to Tokyo that same night, but he'd heard that another officer had a dream in which Goddard was killed in a plane crash. The man described an aircraft carrying Goddard, two other men, and a woman. It experienced difficulties with atmospheric icing, which is when the atmosphere freezes things on contact, an especially dangerous phenomena for aircrafts. The plane crashes on a pebbled beach near mountains. Goddard was persuaded to take two men and a woman to the Douglas Dakota transport flying to Tokyo. As in the officer's dream, the Dakota iced over and was forced to make a crash landing on the island of Sado in Japan, a pebbled beach near mountains. Unlike the dream, no one was hurt. Goddard retired in 1951 and became the principal of the College of Aeronautics. He was eventually the president of the Airship Association from 1975 to 1984. So while his career remained strong, so did his belief in this strange experience. In his retirement, he became convinced of the spiritual world. He spent years investigating and giving talks on flying saucers. In 1969, he gave a talk at Caxton Hall in London on UFOs, which many have interpreted 
as an interdimensional hypothesis. Like I said, Goddard was an accomplished and educated pilot. He was well-respected. But what of this vision of planes and mechanics that did not fit in 1935? Was it a clairvoyant experience in which he saw the future? Did he simply imagine things? Perhaps he knew more than others and had a sneaking suspicion that training planes would be painted yellow, or that the monoplane would soon be created. Or was the strange storm, the one with yellow clouds and strong winds, was that to blame? Did it transport him to another time? As of today, his report of the incident still remains on the official record. On a hot July 1954, people were lining up at the Haneda Airport, also known as Tokyo International Airport, to pass through immigration. It was an average day, nothing too unusual, and people were going through the line smoothly. One person waiting in line was a Caucasian man with a beard. He was noted to have looked comfortable at the airport, despite commercial jets being a newish feature during that time, probably indicating that he was a businessman. But like I said before, it was a hot day, a calm day, and people were lining up to enter Japan. Once he handed his passport to the guard or officials, something halted that smooth immigration procedure. The passport he handed to them was from a country called Tared, that's spelled T-A-U, R-E-D. Whilst the passport looked authentic, the country where it was issued, Tared, was recognized as non-existent, either by the officer or one of his or her colleagues, indicating that the man should be taken away for interrogation. When questioned where Tared was from, the man said it was in Europe. He spoke fluent Japanese, but also was known to have spoken French various other languages. The officials brought him to another room, which is generally what happens at an airport when something suspicious happens. They inspected his bag and noted that he had cash from various European countries. They also continued to question him about Tarrant, because even today, that country never existed. Now, when questioned about his country of origin, the man became angry which is understandable because disrupting travel can make anyone angry. He stated that it was his third trip this year to Japan for business and that he'd been traveling to Japan for the last five years. He had claimed that he was meeting with a company and that they should be expecting him soon. The officials called the company that the man was supposed to meet and they said they didn't know who he was. They couldn't find proof of the company he said he worked for also, the hotel that the man claimed to be staying at couldn't find any record of him. When the Japanese officials showed him a map of the world and asked him to show them where Tarud was, the man stared at the map, stunned. He stated that his country was located where the map showed the Principality of Andorra, along with parts of France and Spain. He also added that Tard had existed for almost a thousand years, so it should have been on the map. Eventually, he was detained and placed in a nearby hotel so the officials could figure out what to do with him, 
Mind you, this was the 1950s. Commercial jet airplane travel had only existed for a couple of years. Immigration travel issues would have been an unknown subject to handle. Two immigration officials were set to guard the room, and the traveler was not allowed to leave until the authorities could make a decision about what to do with the problem. The man was served dinner, and he informed the authorities that he was going to go to sleep. The guards stood outside the door for the rest of the night. When they opened the door the next day, he was gone. Actually, any evidence of the man, suitcase, passport, etc., was gone too. The only other exit was through a window high above a busy street. There was one thing for certain. The man was gone, and no one knows how. Colin Wilson's Directory of Possibilities and Tom Slellman's Strange But True Mysterious and Bizarre People are two works that have referenced the man from Tarid Incident. The Directory of Possibilities was first published in 1981 and is essentially a collection of short articles on varying claimed types of paranormal events. In it, it states, quote, and in 1954, a passport check in Japan is alleged to have produced a man with papers issued by the nation of Tared. Tom Selzman's book, Strange But True Mysterious and Bizarre People, was published in 1999. Given the time between the two printings of the story, you might expect that some further information had been acquired, but Selman covers the story in just one paragraph. It states, quote, there have been many reports of visitors from other planets dropping on Earth. In 1954, the Japanese authorities detained a man trying to enter the country with a passport that revealed that he was from an unheard of country named Tarith. A thorough check was made by the customs officials to see if there was such a place anywhere on Earth, but they drew a blank. The stranger refused to throw light on the whereabouts of the mysterious nation of Tarid and quickly left Japan." End quote. However, there is something odd about both books. They don't have sources. This was the pre-internet. Yes, one could have read the other and expanded their theories based on the tale, but it definitely seems excessive and odd to blatantly plagiarize someone else's work to expand one's own. Especially for a publisher to accept and not fact check before publishing. So the question is, if they didn't steal and plagiarize that work, who told them this story? As I have mentioned before, The Twilight Zone is my favorite television show. With the common theme of the paranormal, it explores the issues of morality and staying true to what we really are as humans. It sparked my interest into the unknown. And yes, it talked about time travel. There is one episode that I can think of that really reflects the fearsome reality of this episode. The horrifying concept of losing your identity and your reality all while still staying sane. It is called the parallel because, well, the character ends up in a parallel dimension. He is an astronaut that manages to land back on the wrong Earth, a land that looks and feels the same, but 
have small details that are different than what he's used to. He finally manages to fly back to space and move back to his own world to experience his happy ending, because that's what television shows give you, a happy ending. But let's just say in this reality, time travel or parallel universes do exist, and people can't have that happy ending. What if you wake up tomorrow and find yourself trapped not in our world? What would you do then? I don't know. I can't help you. However, I do think about that from time to time. How do you reach out for help when no one can understand what you're trying to say? That, for me, is scarier than any ghost or goblin lurking under your bed. To be lost in an unknown is the most frightening of all. Yes, all of these stories we have told you might be connected to an urban myth of some sort, but also, we aren't certain that they aren't facts either. The only thing I can factually give you is that science has had a strong belief in time travel, as well as parallel dimensions. It's entirely possible. There is nothing in science whatsoever that can disprove their existence. When it comes to those topics, we haven't yet touched the surface. I'm going to end you off with a quote from the episode in the parallel. It's actually what two military men say to each other when the main character, Bob, gets sent back to space. One says, Another world parallel to ours? Call it rational? Up there, who knows what's rational and what isn't? We don't even know the rules, sir, let alone the facts. We're like little ants that have just made it to the desert. Now, we say we have conquered the Sahara and we haven't conquered anything. We're only starting to find the mysteries, General. We haven't even begun to solve them. If you would like to reach out to us, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Tales of the Number Two Cities Podcast at gmail.com. Also, if you would like to hear an episode on your state, please contact us. We would love to cover it. If you would like more goodies from us, please check out our Patreon. We offer one-time only purchase deals that make it easy for anyone who doesn't have the financial abilities to help us monthly. We would also like to send a shout out to our first Patreon pledge, Avery. You have our undying love and gratitude. Also, you can support us by checking out our merch store, which is listed on our Facebook, website, and our Instagram. Subscribing and rating us on your podcast device helps us out too. It really does. But above all, thank you so much for listening to this episode.